If you shut your eyes and are a lucky one, you may see at times a shapeless pool of lovely pale colors suspended in the darkness. Then if you squeeze your eyes tighter, the pool begins to take shape, and the colors become so vivid that with another squeeze they must go on fire. This is how J.M. Barrie instructs the reader to visualize Neverland in Chapter 8 of Peter Pan. Just a couple sentences that gives all the responsibility to us to imagine the most wondrous place our minds can conceive, and then he gets to carry on with describing more of Peter's adventures. Steven Spielberg, on the other hand, had a nearly impossible task with Hook. He had to create Neverland from the ground up, populate it with lost boys and mermaids and pirates, and then film it in such a way that it could compete with what we collectively pictured in our minds since the time we were children. My name is Christopher Allen Maloney, and this is Hooked, a deep dive podcast into the most bangerang movie ever made. This is episode two, Neverland. Hook was filmed 30 years ago, so CGI, computer-generated imagery, really wasn't an option yet in creating Neverland. This was well before Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy made us believe we were seeing Middle-earth thanks to stunning digital visual effects, and a heavy assist from New Zealand, of course. And this was long before James Cameron used an entirely computer-generated planet as the setting for 2009's Avatar. Spielberg's production would be responsible for physically constructing a believable version of Neverland using practical, tangible means. It would have to be carved, layered, built, and painted by an enormous crew of craftsmen. Every other time we've seen Neverland on screen, it's been either completely animated, like in Walt Disney's version, Oh, Peter, it's just as I've always dreamed it would be. Oh, look, John, there's Mermaid Lagoon. Or fleshed out with heavy use of CGI, like 2003's Peter Pan with Jason Isaacs. But before construction on Neverland and all the other sets for Hook could even begin, a few kinks needed to be ironed out. First of all, there was already another director developing the movie for production by the time Steven Spielberg became aware of it. Halloween. The night he came home. Nick Castle, the big lumbering guy who played Michael Myers in Halloween, had become a writer and director in his own right. He had written Escape from New York with John Carpenter and had directed The Last Starfighter in 1984. So, TriStar Pictures apparently felt okay letting Nick Castle direct Hook. At first. Uh, The studio apparently got cold feet uh, with the idea of Castle directing because they realized that this movie could be pretty big. This could be a big movie. Justin Van Voris, filmmaker and movie critic. The head of TriStar was a guy named Mike Metavoy, and Mike Metavoy also happened to be Spielberg's former agent. And he had just become head of the um, head of the company. And usually what happens when um, a new studio head comes aboard, they get rid of all the projects that their predecessor was developing. And the one movie that they decided to retain during the changeover was Hook. 
Mike Medavoy decided to bring Hook directly to his old client, Steven Spielberg, who apparently was interested in directing right away. Dustin Hoffman had been attached to the project for several years already, and Robin Williams was then also brought on. Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams both were on board the Hook project before Spielberg was. And they were a part of it when Castle was involved. But once they found out that Steven Spielberg could direct this movie, then I think the feeling was that they were like, well, we would much rather make this film with Steven Spielberg than Nick Castle. I have to admit, it's always made me kind of uncomfortable to think of Spielberg stepping in while another director was forced to step aside. But before you feel too bad for Nick Castle, keep in mind he did receive a producer and story credit for Hook, as well as a large payday to buy him out of his contract. And he went on to direct other things. Dennis the Menace. That's me! America's classic kid in a classic American comedy. Directed by Nick Castle, a John Hughes production. Okay, maybe you should feel a little bad for Nick Castle. Steven Spielberg began filming Hook in February of 1991, but by this point Neverland had already been taking shape for months. Situated at Sony Pictures Studios in Culver City, California, Hook was to be filmed on no less than nine sound stages. These included the Lost Boys hideout, complete with Rufio's wind coaster, Hook's cabin, and a full-sized pirate ship in water surrounded by a wharf. And with these huge sets came huge stars, making the movie about as big an undertaking as possible. In this featurette from 1991, Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman talk about being surrounded by Neverland. The sets themselves were so... As, as elaborate and as crazy as they looked, and as big as such a scale, there's something kind of very, I don't know, very real and very human about it, too. The town had such sense of detail that it didn't look like a set, it looked like a town. People spend hours and days of carving out a thing like this and the meticulousness of everything. I mean, you have a whole soundstage going up that high, and you have a ship that big, and you go to the next soundstage, and you got Neverland, then you go to the other place, you got another piece of Neverland. I mean, it, it is magic. No one had ever seen the likes of it. The sets became their own attraction, drawing in visitors desperate for a look at Spielberg's take on Neverland. Anybody who was anybody in the industry just any celebrity at all was coming like every day to the set um, to visit and check it out. This is Scott Brody, who worked as Robin Williams's stand-in throughout the filming of Hook. He sort of became the de facto tour guide for high-profile visitors. It was this amazing thing. So like I gave a tour of the set to Janet Jackson, you know, and, and I got to speak to um, Penny Marshall and, and, you know, I, I joked with her, actually, because uh, she came in at the end of lunchtime, and I had heard on the walkie-talkie that Stephen was about to go back to set. So she was standing there waiting, and, and it was just the two of us. And I said, you know what would be really cool, since you're a director now, and you know Robin, you should go in there and, and pretend that you're directing um, so when Stephen comes in, you know, <laughs> he'll be all surprised. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she goes, 
I wouldn't touch this movie with a 10 foot pole. Too many special effects. I don't do that. <laughs> Before Hook was wrapped, Neverland would host the likes of John Voight and Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise, Whoopi Goldberg, Demi Moore, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Mel Gibson. It got to be, I mean, the, the sets became a, like a Disney ride, you know, the tour groups coming through to see the sets while they were shooting. Screenwriter and executive producer, Jim Hart. So the actual shooting of the film became an event that high VIPs and actors, movie stars and direct, you know, people would come in to, to be on the set while they were shooting. And that only, that can't, um, that can't be a healthy place for a director of Steven's caliber to get him to do his best work. There were no two ways about it. Hook was big. Big sets, big stars, big production, elaborate costumes, hundreds of extras, almost like an old studio musical in the tradition of The Wizard of Oz or Mary Poppins. Hook sort of just grew. Um, you know, more and more stuff happened. At one moment, we were a musical. Caroline Goodall, who plays Moira Banning. She went on to appear in movies such as Cliffhanger, Schindler's List, The Princess Diaries, and recently the Netflix series The Crown. And I, I learned a song. Oh, really? <laughs> I, oh, my God, yeah. I went into, it was an extraordinary experience because I'm not a singer. Um, and uh, to have John Williams yeah. um, conducting a whole orchestra in a recording studio and you're in the booth <laughs> trying to sing your bit, it was mind-blowing. Jim Hart. And that was the other problem. Stephen, Stephen couldn't decide whether he wanted to do a musical or, you know, that, that he, he had songs composed by Leslie Brickus and John Williams and actually shot some musical sequences that were cut out of the film because it, the, tone was, he, the tone wasn't right. It was not supposed to be a musical. There are some remnants left over from when it was going to be a musical. There's We Don't Want to Grow Up at the beginning, presented as a song from the stage play of Peter Pan that the Bannings are watching. We want to be like Peter Pan. We don't want to grow up. Want to stay kids as long as we can. That's our plan. Pretty neat plan. And there's Pick em Up, sung by the Lost Boys when they're trying to get Peter into better physical condition in anticipation of his ultimate war with Captain Hook. Which is odd when you think about it. Why, in a non-musical film, are the Lost Boys suddenly singing a song that they all seem to know the lyrics to, with accompanying music behind them? I guess I never really thought about it before. And the biggest leftover from Hook as a musical is a song called When You're Alone. This comes late in the film. Young Amber Scott, the actor who plays Peter's kidnapped daughter, is on the wharf at dusk outside of Captain Hook's ship. Her arms are wrapped around a mooring pole as she looks out wistfully into Neverland's skies, filling the soundtrack with a lullaby. There's a gift the angels send when you're alone. You know, the only song that's in there still is the little one that Amber sings, which is the same song. We all had that recurring song 
to sing little moments that we had where we need we sung that song and she's the only one left singing it she stands there <laughs> clutching the um the mast i think and sings her heart out because honestly i think she practiced it every day and that she was there was no way that girl was not going to be singing and there was no way that wasn't going to be in the movie as far as she was concerned and i truly think that steven's such a big big heart he thought i'm going to leave it in or i'll kill her <laughs> she'll never forgive me so we have that one song and then of course there's the pirates doing a few things but but um it's I, gosh i think you know the music's still there it really should be i think it'd be a wonderful stage musical this moment in the film is sort of explained away and given context by having Jack say that it's a song their mom used to sing to them, but taken by itself, it looks exactly like a moment from a movie musical. It was nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars that year, by the way. It lost to Beauty and the Beast. So we'll never see Hook, the musical. All that remains now are snippets of Leslie Brickus's lyrics and our best guesses at how they may have fit in with John Williams's score. And there's this, a lo-fi recording from the annals of the Hook archives. We have a copy thanks to a devoted Hook fan. It's a song called Childhood. This melody appears all throughout the movie, just without words. It's perhaps the most recognizable tune from the film, in fact. And hearing it with words for the first time is surreal. At least for fans of the movie. Another little piece of the musical that survived is a collection of lines to what would have been a show-stopping number by the pirates. It's called Low Below, and you'll likely recognize the melody. Low below, where dead men go. Low below, the time goes slow. Low below, your bones will show. There's the grave of Davy Jones, low below. Justin Van Voris. That whole sequence where they're presenting the hook, they're going to bring the hook, that, that piece of music, uh, was a, originally intended to be a song called Low Below. And then it, it transitions into a portion of the song that's actually in the movie where the the pirates are chanting, give us the hook. And that whole sequence 
is like a musical number because it's heavily choreographed. You have all these extras then following Smee up to the boat to present Hook with his uh, newly sharpened hook. And that whole sequence, it, it just feels like a musical number. Personally, I don't think the movie needed to be a musical. And if its development uh, or of its intention to be a musical um, happened, then that's good because that is what gave us that score, that amazing score that has just so much emotion, so much adventure. The movie is the score. They, I believe, you know, I personally believe that half the enjoyment of this movie is the music, is the musical score. It is another character in the film. It is that that whimsy, that adventure, and um, that's what that's what makes me love this movie, and that's what stays with me. And it it it's it's helped, it's enhanced by that score. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When I. Uh... I, I bought the CD of the Hook soundtrack when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11. And I remember listening to it for the first time. And when it played the, the Peter Pan theme, I literally felt like I was being lifted up into the air. And that's yeah. never happened to me before or after. I think this is John Williams' best work. It is top to bottom score i believe it's about 95 percent score i don't think there are any moments in this movie and if there are there are very few where there is no score in the background because apparently he had been working on it for so long because he had been prepping it to be a musical and it's such a if you listen to that score it is such a lyrical score. It is so dense. There are so many themes in this movie. There is the Peter Pan theme. The childhood theme. The Lost Boys theme. There's even like a Smee theme there. And he plays them like over and over at different times with different instruments. And Apparently, it's because he worked on this score so much with the intent for it to be a musical. And a lot of the songs that were written by him and uh, Leslie Brickus ended up being just a part of the score. When James V. Hart finished the script for Hook, in some ways his work was just beginning. He also signed on as executive producer and so was there all throughout the filming. I saw many days on the set where 
there would be a lot of frustration uh, in uh, what they were going to shoot. Uh, dealing with 35 kids as a director, I, 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 what I came to learn was that it was admire what a director has to go through to get anything on the on the screen, you know. Uh, and I asked Stephen, "What's your what what's the ratio?" And he said, the, "Your first movies, you get 80 percent." You know, he said, "I'll be lucky if I get 25 to 40 percent of what I want to do uh, uh, on this one." Spielberg has since said that he would arrive on the set of Hook every day wondering if the production was flying out of control. And it sort of was. It would eventually go almost 100 days over schedule, and the budget would grow by an estimated $20 million. And this film marked something new for Steven Spielberg. It was the first time he had worked with a cast made up of movie stars. Film critic Sarah Mars. It was like a four-way intersection because it's the world's biggest director, Spielberg. It's the world's biggest the most famous woman in the world, arguably the biggest celebrity of the day, Julia Roberts. Robin Williams, also incredibly famous and already a mega star and a huge talent. And then Dustin Hoffman, who was one of the darlings of the new Hollywood era of the 70s, like one of the great, you know, uh, post-Brando method actors. And you had all four of them colliding in this movie. It's no wonder like if you believe the stories that it was a rough production it's no wonder that can you imagine the the egos involved <laughs> most of the rumors of purported tension on set between spielberg and his cast center around julia roberts as tinkerbell or as she was allegedly called behind her back tinker hell oh my god well she was a back-to-back -back oscar nominee and pretty woman made her I mean, it's that thing that happens like the overnight sensation. Really, she'd been working for several years. She'd been in things. She'd been in Mystic Pizza. Um, and then here comes the Pretty Woman, and it's the biggest movie. And she is just in with that, obviously, the smile and the laugh and everything. She's immediately America's sweetheart. So what could turn America's sweetheart into Tinkerhell? For that, we have to go back to a time when she and Kiefer Sutherland were engaged to be married. Julia Roberts and Kiefer Sutherland met on the set of Flatliners, which I think today is really only relevant if you're playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, because <laughs> everyone, everyone is in that movie. If you can pull someone from Flatliners, you're there. Kiefer Sutherland and Jason Patrick had been in The Lost Boys together. They were friends. They weren't super best friends, but they were friends. And at some point in the late 80s, she dated Jason Patrick for a second. And then she was with Kiefer Sutherland and they were going to get married and they were going to get married at stage 14 on the Fox lot, which is like a historic soundstage. So it was going to be like a real old Hollywood and obviously Kiefer coming from the Sutherland acting dynasty and then Julia Roberts is America's sweetheart. So it had this kind of old Hollywood, new Hollywood. They're going to get married at stage 14. But literally, I think it was a couple weeks before the wedding, Kiefer Sutherland moves out of the house he shares with Julia Roberts into an apartment building across the street from his favorite pool hall. He takes up with an exotic dancer. Uh, he ends up moving back to Julia Roberts's house. The wedding is still on, but people are definitely side-eyeing it. And Jason Patrick gets disinvited from the wedding. The week before the wedding, Jason Patrick is disinvited. And then three days before the wedding, their publicists, Kiefer Sutherland's and Julia Roberts' publicists issue a joint statement that says the wedding is postponed. Um, and, and then the day of the wedding, Julia Roberts is seen eating hamburgers with Jason Patrick. 
And then she goes on her honeymoon as scheduled to Ireland with Jason Patrick. So <laughs> she, uh, she dumped Kiefer Sutherland and ran off with his friend, which is probably something to do with why he got disinvited. She likes to dump brooms right at the altar, plows down the aisle, knocking old ladies out of her way like the running of the bulls in Pamplona. So Julia Roberts was a real-life runaway bride. Now it should be said, though, that any actual evidence of discourteous behavior from Ms. Roberts, especially the kind that would justify being called Tinkerhell, is difficult to find. It seems likely that rumors of tension with Julia, like the budget and schedule for Hook, just got out of control. It's been suggested that Spielberg didn't like the challenges that came with directing someone as famous as Julia, and most of the on-screen talent he had worked with up to that point were respected actors, but usually not big movie stars. It was mostly stuff like she would go back to her trailer. There was like some some report from the crew of like, oh, she wasn't hanging out. And I, it should be noted, Hook was a super dude heavy movie. She was the only prominent woman. And she Plus, didn't I think everything, like she filmed everything kind of separately too. Yeah, because of the, the shrink effect. Yeah. She was working, she was working largely in isolation from the rest of the cast. So she wasn't having a lot of interaction with her castmates. And then you have like, oh, well, she goes back, they, you know, movies like that, long setup between takes. And she would go back to her trailer. And, and of course, this is all happening at the time when her relationship is falling apart. And she's clearly on like a personal, private level. She's going through something. She's clearly going through something. And it's happening on the world stage. Everyone is privy to the intimate details of her wedding falling apart and all that stuff. Everyone is seeing that play out. And she's trying to make this movie at the same time. The alleged tension on set due to Julia Roberts was part of the story of Hook at the time of its release. He said he really enjoyed working with Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams. But when you ask Spielberg about Julia Roberts, the female star of Hook, you really don't get much of an answer. Yeah, I, want, I just want to see uh, take sideline. Get the ladder in here, please. It was an unfortunate time for us to work together. But I, I think that Julie is a, a really, really good actress. Mm -hmm. Would you have any hesitation about working with her again? This is a 60 minutes question, isn't it? <laughs> now, for the record, Stephen and Julia have not worked together since. And this thing with Julia Roberts might explain why Spielberg doesn't like Hook, by the way. He has said before that he only likes the parts of the movie that take place in London. And the end of the London sequence is when Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell appears and takes Peter off to Neverland. She's there all throughout the Neverland scenes, and then she fades away with the sunrise when Peter returns to London. Whatever did or didn't happen with the two of them while making Hook, maybe it was enough to sour him on the movie. Or at least, the parts of the movie that she's in. It's a theory. And it's, it is interesting, those stories that come from set. Because in the same People report where they called her Tinker Hell, where someone quoted as calling her that, they mentioned that Dustin Hoffman was showing up to set drunk. And that he was harassing the women on the set, the assistants. And that did not span thousands of words of breakdowns of his behavior and what was going on with Dustin Hoffman that he's showing up drunk to set. It, it gets a mention. They mentioned that, you know, their sources say Dustin Hoffman showed up sauced and that's it. It's a blip one-liner and there's no follow-up and no one's pressing on it. 
And it's like that, if true, is way more destructive to a working environment than an actor who just kind of shows up and does her work and leaves. Now that certain credible allegations about Dustin Hoffman's behavior have come to light, stories of drunkenness and harassment are not quite the shock they might have been otherwise. Two-time Academy Award winner Dustin Hoffman is considered one of the greatest actors of his generation. Now, five women have come forward accusing Hoffman of sexual harassment. People go, how is it to work with Dustin? And I tell the half-truth, which is, as an actor working with him, I owe him everything. I learned so much. And then I would stop. And there, there would always be a knot in my stomach about what the real truth was, which is he was abusive and, and he was a bully. When these stories of harassment broke, Hoffman sort of faded away and stayed under the radar for a while. Only recently has he begun to quietly get back to work again. Now for what it's worth, people I've spoken to who spent time on the set of Hook haven't shared any horror stories about Dustin Hoffman, or Julia Roberts for that matter. With Roberts, as nearly all her scenes were filmed alone in front of a blue screen or on oversized sets to make her look tiny, most people involved in the film seemed to have no stories about her at all. She was sort of off by herself being filmed in isolation. As for Hoffman, what I get is that he was sort of a pain in the ass. Not for the sake of being a pain in the ass, but because he insisted on doing whatever it took to be the best Captain Hook he could be. It was the weekend of Robin's 40th birthday. Jim Hart. And he'd invited a bunch of us up to the ranch to celebrate his birthday. So it's Friday night and everybody's anxious to get out of town and get up there. And it's the moment where there's this part of the sword fight between Hook and Penn uh, uh, at the end. Uh, and I think it's where Robin swoops up the ramp and they hit the swords and they spark. Pan the Avenger is back and the hook is waiting. Peter Pan. And they were on like take 37, you know. And after every take, Dustin would say, Stephen, it's not quite right. I, I know we can do better. You know, let me try this. You know, and, and Stephen would go, okay. Um, and Stephen said, I, you know, Dustin, we got it. And, no, 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 just one more. And he turned to Robin and he said, Robin, don't you think we could do better? Just one more. And Robin, it's the only time I ever saw Robin show any kind of, 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 um, of, uh, of attitude or, or temper. And he said, Dustin, I think we got it on tape two. <laughs> and he walked off the set. Oh, wow. And Stephen said, that's a wrap. Hooked is produced and edited by me, Christopher Allen Maloney. If you like what you hear, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Christopher Allen Maloney. By signing up, you can get early access to episodes and bonus content that didn't make the show. For more information, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also get in touch with me through ChristopherAllenMaloney.com. Be sure to rate and review Hooked on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Original music is by Victoria Regal. Archival material is protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the Copyright Act of 1976 and is intended for educational and commentary purposes.